DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Dorn. Welcome tonight for our discussion of Philippians chapter 1 through 4. Yes, we're doing Acts of the Apostles, but tonight we're doing a Pauline letter, his letter to the Philippians. So I'm going to start with the book of Daniel. And you say, oh, why does she do that? I hate when she does that. I do that because Catholics study the Word of God canonically. We use the entirety of the scripture. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And I bring you to Daniel, to the time of King Nebuchadnezzar in the Neo-Babylonian Empire, when he reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., He was credited with many architectural wonders like rebuilding the ziggurats and constructing the Ishgar Gate and the beautiful gate around the city of Babylon with the eight beautiful gates. He built one of the seven wonders of the world when he created a hanging garden in Babylon for his wife who missed her homeland. I'll just make you a hanging garden, honey. And also, he is responsible for the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. And so he was tormented with a dream, tormented. And he called, uh, he's, it's of special importance to us tonight because it's the prophetic establishment of the kingdom of God in the latter days in which we live. We are in the final age, the age of the Holy Spirit. And he's tormented with this dream, and he calls in all his wise men, his soothsayers and his sages, and he says, I want to know what this dream means. And they said, sure, king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no. You tell me the dream. We tell you the dream? Or you'll, de- or you'll die. <laughs> they, they are supposed to tell him the dream he had and then interpret it. And they can't. They don't know what to do. But there's one young man who can. And he's a Hebrew. He's from Israel. And his name is Daniel. And he knows by the power of his God, the God of Israel, if he prays to God, God will help save these men's life. Daniel will interpret the dream. He comes forward to the king. You were looking, O king, and lo, this is what you dreamed. There was a great statue, and this statue was huge. It had brilliant. It was extraordinary. It was standing before you. You were frightened by its appearance, and the head of the statue was pure gold. The king knows this is true. Its chest and its arms were made of silver. Its middle and its thighs were made of bronze. Its legs were of iron, and partly of iron and partly of clay were its feet. And as you looked, king, a stone, a stone not cut by human hands, struck the feet of the statue on its feet and iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces, shattered it. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away. There was not a trace of them left that could be found. But the stone that struck the statue 
became a great mountain that was filled the whole earth. That was your dream, sir. That's right. That's what I dreamed. That's what the dream was. Daniel knew by the power of God that was the dream. Now for the interpretation. O king, you are the king of kings, O king of Babylon, to whom the God of heaven has given you power, kingdom, might, and glory, and to whom all people bow down. You, you, O king of Babylon, are the head of gold. That's true. That came to fruition. 605 to 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was the greatest in the world. And then Daniel said, after that, another kingdom inferior to yours will arise. That's the silver. That is true. That's exactly what happened. From 539 to 331 BC, the Medes, the Persian Empire, took over Babylon. That was the silver. It happened. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And it happened. In 331 to 168 BC, the Macedonian or Greek Empire was in power over the world. And then that fourth kingdom, strong as iron, iron that crushes and smashes everything, shall crush and shatter all these kingdoms. And yes, it was. It came to fruition. It was the Roman Empire, the year 168 BC to 476. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away. Not a trace could be found, but the stone, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone was the cornerstone. That stone, not hewn from human hands, was Jesus Christ. He said it himself in Luke's gospel. He looked at them and said, what then does the text mean? The stone that the builders rejected shall become the cornerstone. Peter told us in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone of a new worldwide kingdom over the whole earth, one that will never end. The stone struck the statue and became a great mountain that filled the entire earth. 33 AD, when Christ died, to 2013 today, there is a new kingdom Paul said to the Ephesians, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Peter says, it stands in scripture. See, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the other world empires are no longer standing, but this worldwide kingdom continues to hold firm. So the lifespans of those kingdoms, Babylon in power for 66 years, Persia 208 years, Greece 163 years, Rome 503 years, the church 1,980 years and counting, still going. Jesus taught us how to pray when he said, your kingdom come, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom will have no end this worldwide kingdom. And we say it in our Nicene Creed every Sunday. He will come again in glory to judge the living in the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the kingdom predicted way back in Daniel's time. What does Jesus himself say about this kingdom, his kingdom? At the Last Supper in Luke 22, he says to his 12 apostles, I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we do eat and drink at the table in his kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a different kind of kingdom. Jesus before Pilate, the head of the Roman Empire, the the prefect, he says, so you're a king then? And Jesus answered him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. It's a different kind of kingdom. Paul goes before Felix, the governor of the entire Roman Empire. It's kind of a recapitulation. He stands there and says at the end of Acts, And now I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom... None of you will ever see my face again, because he knows he will face the sword of Nero. He will be killed for this kingdom. Jesus said, the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This was in his mind's eye all along. This was his plan all along. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We have to repent. We have to believe. We have to be baptized, and we have to live out the gospel. Do the will of the Father. James says, listen, my brothers and sisters, beloved, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? And to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. To be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. Who's going to inherit this kingdom? The sons and daughters of the father who do his will, who obey him and who love him, who listen deeply and obey his commands. It's a kingdom different than any other kingdom I know. The, the head guy wears a ring, a mitre, and a pastoral staff. The subjects look like this. Sheep. <laughs> Dumb sheep that wander from bramble to bramble, whatever we can feed on next. And the army of this king, we battle against an invisible, unseen enemy. Satan and his legions and his dominions and his powers. He may be unseen, but he's extremely powerful. The centurion was Roman. He was not Jewish. And Jesus says to him, he says, Lord, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. We say it at mass, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you in all Jerusalem, there's no one else in all Israel who has such faith. This is Roman centurion soldier. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Jews who don't believe this, who don't believe he's Messiah, who don't believe he's Lord, the Catholics who don't really believe this stuff, that are Catholic in name only, How do you become an heir 
to this eternal kingdom. Do you have to be a Jew? Do you have to be a Gentile? What do you got to do? Paul says you have to belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news. He tells Titus, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs. We're going to inherit this. We're going to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To the Romans, he said, we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. In fact, if we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Well, we don't want to suffer. We didn't know that was part of the deal. Really? Suffer? Ah, boy. But Ananias was told to go baptize Paul. And Ananias said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go, Lord. I don't want to go baptize him. He's, he's no, no. But the Lord said to him, go, go. He is my chosen instrument. I have chosen him to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. I myself will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, holy are you. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the distribution of Catholics worldwide now we're pretty much filling the whole earth. The last census in 2011 was 1.21 billion Catholics worldwide. You can always find a Catholic church. You can always go to Catholic mass somewhere every hour around the entire face of the earth. Catholics fill the whole earth and it's a big kingdom. Jesus said this temple's going to go. But it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. He said destroy the temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. Three days? What is he saying? But the temple he's speaking of is his body. And we're the mystical body of Christ on earth now. And the disciples didn't get it until he was raised from the dead. And they said, oh, remember when he said his temple was the body? Oh. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going back to the Father. I'm ascending. I'm going back to his right hand. But Peter, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, feed my sheep. Last week in Acts 16, we're, we were in 50 AD, 50 years after his death. Oh, 20 years after his death. Okay, because he died at age 33, approximately. We saw Paul, Timothy, and Silas in Philippi. So we're about... Uh, we're in this Roman Empire time between the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, which is the church. Messiah had come, that rock, not hewn from human hands, that cornerstone had come. A rock had smashed the other kingdoms. The rock is Jesus Christ. He has a kingdom that will have no end, just as predicted in Daniel. We're in the city of Philippi with Paul. It was the leading city in the Greek Empire. Now, in 50 AD, it has been taken over by the Roman Empire. It's a Roman colony. So we're right in this last, we're right in between the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. Philip of Macedonia, a Greek, had captured Philippi. He is the father of Alexander the Great. 
After he captured the city, he named it Philippi after himself, Philip II of Macedonia. His son is Alexander the Great, the greatest warrior Greek had ever seen. He reigned, he conquered much territory. He's the son of Philip and Princess Olympias. He was trained by Aristotle. How would you like to have Aristotle for your philosophy and literature teacher? <laughs> From age 13 to 16, Aristotle taught him, but he wasn't much for literature. He had seen his own father be assassinated right in front of him. He wanted to be a warrior. He wanted sport. He, wanted, he was going to war for Greece and be the greatest warrior ever. And during his reign, he conquered much, much, much territory for Greece. And he died at a young age from malaria at age 32. And he was a dearly loved Greek uh, conqueror. So that's when Greek, Greece, Grecian Empire was in power. Now... It's going to be taken over by Rome. The Ides of March is a day on the Roman calendar that corresponds to March 15th. It became notorious when it was the day that Julius Caesar was assassinated. And when Caesar was assassinated, it was a turning point in Roman history. One of the events that marked the transition of the historical period known as the Republic moves to the Roman Empire. Cassius and Brutus were the assassins. They flee. They've killed Julius Caesar, and they flee. Mark Antony and Octavian, Augustus Caesar, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, will go after them. They will conquer them. They will find them. Guess where they are? In Philippi. <laughs> they'll, they'll capture them. But in 42 B.C., 42 years before Christ, the Roman Senate made a formal declaration that Julius Caesar who had been assassinated, is now officially a god. He is a deity of the Roman Empire. He is made God, declared God. This is he called the imperial cult. It's the fastest growing religion of the Roman Empire at the time. Caesar is given godlike status. So if Julius Caesar is a god, his son Octavian Augustus Caesar is now son of God. Get it? This is what's going on at Paul's time. And if he's son of God, Roman temples were built for him. This one is in France. But when he dies in 14 years, at 14 AD, he is officially also made a god. He is deified. So it's Caesar, Octavian, Augustus is in the Bible, in Luke chapter 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a census, to be taken of the entire Roman world. And Mary and Joseph have to get on a donkey and head to Bethlehem, to the city of David, to be counted. The Roman Empire is spreading from Great Britain to Israel, includes Spain and Asia Minor. It's growing and growing, conquering more land. Paul told the Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come, what does that mean, the fullness of time? It's a perfect trifecta. It is perfection. All the stars have lined up. This is God's stars. This is God's plan. Because Jerusalem is in place, the covenant of Abraham has been established firmly in God's chosen people. Greece is there. Greece has the language. Greece has the language that can support theology and philosophy. Greek, the Septuagint was written in Greek. Jesus would have wrote, written out of a Greek copy of scripture, Old, Old Testament. Um, and the Roman Empire was in place. They had law. They had roads. 
they were spreading. The roads were very important and will be important for Paul to spread the gospel all over the face of the Roman Empire because they can travel now. All roads lead to Rome, and Paul will use all of them. So Rome is advancing and advancing and spreading the empire. Son of God is doing a good job ruling. But a new king is born with a new empire. And kings from foreign lands are coming to meet him. He is another son of God. Born to a poor Jewish girl, and they don't even have enough for the presentation. They have to give the two pigeon poor offering. He has to be born in a stable in hay with animals. Octavian Augustus Caesar, son of God, was to keep Rome in peace. If they could keep the empire peaceful, they could reign longer. Pax Romana set in, peace for Rome. From 27 BC to 193 AD, it was a very peaceful time for Rome. So Octavian earns another title. Not only is he son of God, he's also prince of peace. <laughs> You're getting it. Why do you think 40% of St. Paul's letters come from inside a prison cell? <laughs> Because Paul says he's not the son of God. He's the son of God. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Not your emperor, not Octavian. He's not son of God. And he's not the prince of peace either. Octavian Caesar is not the prince of peace. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not Octavian Caesar. Augustus. So Paul says radical things like that that get him locked up all the time. And he writes us this letter tonight from a jail cell. Rome will reach its highest uh, acquiring of territory by 117 AD under Emperor Trajan. So tonight we're going to read a letter from Paul. We're reading someone else's mail. You really are. You're reading his letter. And it's called Philippians, and it's a short letter. There's four chapters. Let's talk for a minute just about letters, how wonderful letters are, because it's a lost art anymore to receive a letter. And you know how fun it is to get a handwritten letter in the mail, because usually we shoot a text or an email off and done. But a handwritten letter is a precious gift, and it always will be. I have boxes of love letters from Steve in our basement, boxes and boxes, because we dated five years in different states. We'd write each other on Sunday afternoon and send our letters. He was in Chicago, I was in Nebraska, and on Thursday, the letter would get there in the mail. And then at 11.01, when the rates went down, he'd run to the end of his dorm hall, and I'd run to the end of my dorm hall, and we'd call each other on those phones, wait in the line for our turn when the rates went down. You know, we didn't have cell phones. So those letters were precious. And our son just made a retreat here at prep, and uh, it, it's a junior encounter, and you send letters. So I asked our older sons, could you just email something to Thomas Quick, and I'll run it off and throw it in an envelope. And Paul said, no, I will write a handwritten letter, and it might be a few days late, but it's going to be handwritten. And that was Thomas's favorite letter. He said, yeah, yours was pretty lame, Mom. It was all scripture. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul's was really good. It was handwritten in longhand. So... The art of letter writing. So, Paul and Timothy, it starts like this. Servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus, that's all he has to say to the Philippians. 
We're going to see him echo a lot of the Old Testament in all his writings because he's a master. He trained under Gamaliel. He knows the scriptures. So he'll echo. Moses also called himself a servant of the Lord, as did Joshua, the servant of the Lord, as did David, the servant of the Lord. So Paul, the servant of the Lord. Now to the other letters that he writes, he'll often say, and I'm an apostle. He wants people to know, I am an apostle. I really am. I know I'm not one of the 12. But Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord, told me, I am an apostle. I am to bring his word. So he was always clarifying that I really am a real one. I really am. So to the Corinthians, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And to the Galatians, an apostle sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ, the God of Father, who raised it from the dead. Uh, to, to the Ephesians, an apostle. To the, uh, an, an apostle, an apostle. To the Romans, an apostle. But to the Philippians, I'm a servant. That's all he had to say. Because there aren't a lot of Jews in Philippi. It's a Roman colony. It's not even, there's not even a synagogue there. Remember, the women were by the river. There was no synagogue. They, they are Roman retired military. They'll accept him. They don't care what he is. He's telling a good story. He's telling a good message. And so he just is a servant to them. He loved the saints at Philippi. And he calls them saints, little s. And you are all saints. Every baptized person is a saint, little s. Anyone want to be a big s? Canonized saint? Good. We got some in here. Good. Then be humble and don't raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was teasing. I just thought of that for myself because I do want to be a saint. And, and I, I just, I just, I, I do. Okay, so. Um, so Philip named it Philippi. And it was a gold rush town at the time when this Greek uh, Macedonian Philip named the town. And there was uh, in the mountain behind the city, there's Philippi. And in Mount Pangion behind it, there are gold in them, there are hills there in, in, in Philippi. So people would settle there. Mark Anthony found a dry patch in the marsh, and that's where he captures Cassius. Cassius will commit suicide. He thinks his army has deserted him. He's the one who was the assassin of Julius Caesar. Brutus did the same thing a few days later when Mark Anthony and Octavian Caesar go after them. Ten years later, Octavian Augustus will turn on Mark Anthony and because he's the sole competitor for the, the Roman rule in Rome, and he is killed at the Battle of Actium by Octavian. So now Octavian's in charge. He's the first Caesar of the Roman Empire. And he um, offers, they're not real crazy about him in Philippi, but he offers land and money, so all right. They, let, they, they go for it. He changes the name of the city after himself, Colonia Augusta Julia Philippensis. They say, yeah, we'll stick him to Philippi. Even Paul still called it Philippi. We don't care what he named it. It's going to be Philippi. So the town was ruled by two officers. And uh, the Romans, they were given Roman citizenship. Anyone who lived here, it's on the Italian, it was treated as a town of the Italian peninsula under Roman citizenship. Uh, there were theaters. There was a theater. There was lavatories there, latrines. That's how you know it's a Roman colony. They had bathrooms. That's really good. And uh, basilica, Christian basilica with a baptistry later. But a beautiful city of Philippi. And the most important thing, a Roman road that went all the way to Rome, 493-mile road, the Via Ignatia, went through Philippi. It's where Paul and Silas were recently prisoned, last chapter. They were in prison. You'll remember the jailbreak. 
And you'll remember it's where Lydia opened her heart to the Lord by the river because there was no synagogue and they were, women were praying at the river on Shabbat. Lydia, that beautiful merchant of purple cloth that opened her heart to the Lord. So Philippians is a letter that St. Paul wrote from a prison cell to the saints in Philippi. There are four captivity epistles that Paul writes. That means he was in prison. Those are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Those are all captivity epistles. He's been in prison many, 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 many times. The first one we know of was at Ephesus in 56, followed by Caesarea Maritima, an imprisonment there, an imprisonment in Rome. And we know he was imprisoned in Philippi from last chapter, Acts 16. So a lot of prison time. But Paul didn't mind because prison time was time to, to rest, time to write, time to pray, and time to evangelize. Remember the jail guy, the, the jail owner in the last chapter, his, he and his whole family were baptized by Paul during that jail stay. So he's going to write this letter from prison to the saints, which means they are chosen by God, an election signaled by consecrated members of God's holy people. Also, he addresses it to bishops and deacons. This is the very first time in the New Testament where we will hear it's the earliest mission of bishops and deacons by name. So we see a hierarchy forming already in the early church. Pope Paul VI, in his post-Vatican II document, Lumen Gentium at number 20, will refer to this scripture and the early placement of bishops and deacons in the church. Some scholars think that Paul's very favorite people were the Philippians. He loved the Philippians. And you can see that in this salutation. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, a beautiful salutation is what we pray for our babies when we baptize them, when we claim them for Christ. We're confident that the one, Jesus Christ, who began a good work in them will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus. I pray that for my kids. Paul says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, the whole imperial guard and everyone else, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's going to convert all the imperial guard to know Jesus. And so he's telling him, you know, your boss, Caesar, that Caesar, Octavian Augustus, that says he's son of God and prince of peace, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's my boss that's that. He's nothing. He's a man. My boss is Jesus Christ, and he converts the imperial guard. Wow. That prison time was a fruitful time. Most of the brothers and sisters have been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They dare to speak the word with great boldness and without fear. So he is telling them all about Jesus Christ and the good news while he's in prison. Caesar Augustus is the first Caesar of Rome. We hear about him in Luke 2. The next one is Caesar Tiberius. We hear about him in Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. 
Thank you, Luke, for these details that we can look back in the history books and see this was a real historical presence. The next Caesar was Caligula. The next one right now, during this chapter, during this time in Paul's life, is Caesar Claudius. And he would have been ruling at this time, followed by Caesar Nero, which we know he will take the life, the slice off the head of Paul and hang Peter upside down. He will be the one in charge when they are martyred, Peter and Paul. But Paul doesn't care. He says, he says that for me, living is Christ. Dying is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me, and I, I don't know which I prefer. I mean, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. I mean, that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you guys, because I can be here, and I can teach, and I can preach to you the gospel. But since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you all again. And then the most beautiful hymn, the most beautiful ancient church hymn about imitating Christ's humility, that we should have the same mind, the same attitude as Jesus Christ. And the church sees this in the catechism at 411. The Christian tradition sees this passage as an announcement of the new Adam who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, making amends super abundantly for the disobedience of Adam. Let's see if we can unpack that a little bit. Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, he's an equal person of the Trinity. He did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, something to be grasped. Jesus Christ didn't think he needed to be equal to the Father. He didn't think he needed to grasp the same identity as the Father in his person. He did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Unlike this Adam, the old Adam. Because the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And Adam thought, oh, that's something to be grasped. That's something to be exploited. I could be like God. Adam did think that equality with God was something to be grasped. Give me a bite of that. The old Adam wants to be like God. He'd like to grasp that God-like status. Jesus does not regard equality with God the Father as something to be grasped or exploited. But he empties himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. He emptied himself fully, every ounce of body fluid that he had, every drop of blood, blood and water gushing from his side. So Adam filled himself up from the tree with the fruit. Jesus emptied himself from the tree. Complete juxtaposition. He empties himself fully for us. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. God of the universe. Divinity enslaved, trapped in a human creature body. Not even an adult man, but a little baby body. A little baby body that needs to be burped and diapered and fed. That's how low the God of the universe would stoop to put his divinity in this little baby body. Human body. Creature body. 
born in human likeness in a stable to poor people with cow manure and everything. And he has a dual nature. He's fully God and he's fully man. And the catechism will discuss that in 464 to 469 if you want to read that. They use this scripture for validation of that. But he becomes vulnerable. Divinity becomes humanity. In greatest need, he has to eat from Mary. He has to breastfeed. He can't even feed himself. He can't diaper himself. He can't care for himself. He takes the form of a slave in capture and arrest. An innocent man arrested, treated like a common criminal, drugged through the streets, put in front of the Roman court system, in chains for the gospel, just like Paul is now when he writes this letter. And he dies a cursed death. Cursed is he who dies on a tree. And he dies outside the walls of, of Jerusalem because any criminal this horrible can't be inside the walls. And he is found in human form. He humbles himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He becomes obedient to the point of death. Adam is disobedient to the point of spiritual death. Just the opposite. Jesus is obedient to death to give us spiritual life, eternal life forever. Totally obedient every step of the way to the honor and glory of the Father. So God highly exalts him to the highest place, to the highest place you could possibly go, the right hand of the Father, and they all see him go up. He's exalted. Adam was the lowest down. He's trapped with the imprisoned spirits. In the harrowing of Hades, he's the last one to be pulled out. He's in the lowest place. Jesus Christ is in the highest place. And God gives Jesus the name that is above every other name. Acts 4, there is no salvation in no one else. There is no other name under in heaven under which mortals can be saved other than Jesus. Adam's name is low. The, the Hebrew meaning for Adam, ruddy, red, earth, of low degree. Adam's low degree. Jesus is exalted high degree so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many years before that, God had put a word on Isaiah's heart. Turn to me, O turn and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear. That name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a perfect juxtaposition of the old Adam and the new Adam. And then he says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but even more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To these Philippian saints who he loves, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Once saved, always saved? No. Because he says, work out your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. Can you never, ever, ever lose your salvation? That's not what scripture says. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Could you lose it? Yes. 
live out the gospel. Live out the good news while pursuing heaven. So your initial salvation had nothing to do with your works. Nothing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. So when your parents brought you for baptism and you were a little baby, you did nothing to deserve that. You laid there and cried and wet your pants and, ha- and, and burped. and you, you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. It was a free gift. It is not your own doing. It was a sheer gift from God. There could be nothing more sheer gift than an infant baptism. But our final salvation from that moment on <laughs> depends on a lifetime of keeping the faith, working out your salvation. It's a journey. It's a series of conversions. It's going deeper with the Lord. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And he says to keep his commandments in Matthew. Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, into my kingdom, my eternal kingdom, into life, keep the commandments. And persevere in good works to those who, by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. And strive for holiness. Paul told the Hebrews, pursue peace with everyone. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with everyone. So if there's anyone at your Thanksgiving table, if there's any old family members that are going to be there, and you have not pursued peace, with someone, do it this year. And pray without ceasing. And put on the whole armor of God so you can stand against the wiles of the devil. He gives us instruction what to do. Live in the spirit, not the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's pretty clear. Do you not know that in a race... The runners all compete, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win, that you'll win it. So, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This pleases the Father. Do all things without murmuring and grumbling and arguing so that you can be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like the stars in the world. Do we live in a crooked and perverse generation? Turn on the news. Turn on the television, any channel. Do you do all things without murmuring or grumbling all things, because you know the Israelites grumble, 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 grumble. Yes, you have to cook the turkey. Yes. Take out the gizzards and give it to Mary Jane because she loves the gizzards. Do all things without murmuring. Hold fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, that I've been poured out like a libation. Pour yourself out like a libation to the Lord. Pour your life out. But beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Because there's still those from the circumcision party that are thwarting Paul's message that you don't have to be circumcised. 
And they're coming and they're trying, they're jealous of his crowds and they're jealous of his message. And they're saying, yes, 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 you do. And Paul says, beware of those. That message is not true. If anyone else has a reason to be more confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, so as to love Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. Isn't he funny? <laughs> Yet whatever gains I had, these have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered all things as lost. All things. I regard them as rubbish. The, Jew, the, the Greek word there is skubalon. What's skubalon? It's dung. It's excrement. It's dung. It's not a polite word, but he's probably looking at the latrines and the, and the lavatories because he's saying this is, all things are lost. I consider it Refuse, excrement, dung, that I may gain Christ. Everything else doesn't matter. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, I press on toward the goal for the price of the heavenly call of God in Jesus Christ. He'll use a lot of sport because this is a Roman colony, as many of his places are. They love Olympic games. They love running and racing and boxing. Brothers and sisters, I'll imitate Christ, and you guys just imitate me. We're all little Christ. Your kids can imitate you because you're so full of Christ. But our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expelled expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm almost done, but listen to this last thought. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. You're getting a new body one day, a glorified body. This shell is nothing. This life is fleeting. This life is passing. Whoever gets to go there first is the luckiest one. And I know we don't say, it's just opposite of what the world thinks. And I know we have people in here right now who are fighting very, 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 very serious diseases. But you're going to get a new body. And all the scars you have from this life, and we all are full of scars. But when Jesus got a glorified body and he went through the walls in the upper room, one way they knew it was him is because Thomas said, let me put my hand in your scar, in your wounds. The scars were still there in his glorified body. And Thomas went right in to his side and into his hands. So his scars didn't go away in his glorified body. And, and when we get to heaven, you'll have a new body. This shell is wasting away. We're all aging. It's, we know it's going. It's going south in a hurry. <laughs> right? But this is nothing. This is just a shell. And your scars, your brokenness, if you've been through pain in your life, abuse, neglect, divorce, emotional pain, scarring, uh, whatever it is, cancer, divorce, anything, whatever it is, your scars, when united to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, are going to shine brighter than anything else. Your scars will radiate in your glorified body because they're the way you're joined to Christ's cross. To die is Christ. To live is gain. To die, to live in Christ. Whatever we do, whether we live or die, what, it doesn't matter. What This life doesn't matter. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And that's what Paul's saying. 
And you're going to shine like the stars, saints, when you get there. If you follow his ways, if you live his gospel, if you do the will of the Father, your scars will be radiant and you will rejoice. You will rejoice. This life is, that life is forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for our scars. As painful as they are, we know you love us as sons and daughters. And you carry us through those hard times. And you heal our scars. And in our glorified body, you will make them shine and radiate with the light of Christ. We give you our scars tonight, our brokenness, our woundedness, that everything in our life that we need healing. We're broken, we're wounded, we're fallen. But you, Lord Jesus, give us life. And we praise you for that. And we offer up anyone who's sick tonight, anyone who needs healing of any kind. And we all do, Lord Jesus. So I offer this whole body of Christ up to you and your healing power. And we pray tonight on the presentation of Mary, we end with the Memorare. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate. Despise not my petition, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll see you back on December 5th. God bless you all. I'm so thankful for all you saints. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.